hrgrapevine.com. It is the HR Grapevine Podcast. Hi there, everyone. Eric Niewarowski here. Thank you so much for joining me again this week. And this episode is the third installment of our special Workplace of Now series presented along with our friends at Zealous. And in case you don't know, Zealous are the UK and Ireland's leading provider of payroll and HR solutions. With over 50 years of heritage and industry experience, Zealous have been ahead of the curve throughout that time. So today in Workplace of Now, we are going to define a healthy workplace. And to do that, I'm thrilled to be joined once again by Gethin Naden. He is the Chief Innovative Officer at Zealous, as well as a best-selling author and an expert in all things in employee well-being. So today, Gethin's going to help me define what a healthy workplace is. What does that mean uh, from an individual to teams to a company culture? What does health mean and how has the pandemic impacted it? He's also going to help me understand what the role HR leaders have to play in fostering employee and company health and what the markers are of a healthy organization. Once again, it was a very insightful conversation with Gethin, and here it is. Hi, my name's Gethin Nadin, Chief Innovation Officer at Zealous. Uh, I'm an award-winning psychologist, a best-selling HR author. I advise the UK government on approaches to well-being. Uh, I write for a lot of different HR magazines about uh, employee experience, employee well-being. So hopefully fairly well-versed in what we're going to be talking about today. Certainly. Thank you. Uh, so yeah, last time we, we, we spoke, we talked about empathy in HR leadership. And now today we're going to talk about a healthy workplace and really how can we go about defining what a healthy workplace is? So the first question for you is from individuals to teams to entire company culture, what do we mean by health and how has the pandemic uh, affected this? So I think well-being at work, its definition has been muddied throughout, uh, throughout time, especially over the last couple of years. But if you really look at what makes people happy and healthy in life and at work, and I've read probably in the region of 200 studies that have looked at this over the last decade or so, there's a pretty common set of things that we need in our lives to be able to see our subjective well-being or happiness as high as it possibly can be. And that incorporates kind of health, well-being, whatever term you want to use. And that is things like... Um, I have a great social network, so I have strong social capital. I have people around me that I can rely on. There's people that I can speak to when I when I really need help and when I need um, somebody just to kind of be a confidant. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a voice and I have a platform for that voice, so people listen to me and listen to my opinions, and I feel like I contributed. Um, I feel included, not excluded from life or the workplace, so people celebrate my differences if I'm a marginalized group, um, but I start to feel part um, part of that organization. I get recognized for a job well done. Again, inside or outside of work, that kind of appreciation for the effort that we put into any relationship we've got in our lives. Mm-hmm. And so when you really start to think about well-being in that way, you start to think about actually it becomes far less about the way we talk about well-being at work, which is kind of the physical aspects and the mental health aspects. There's all these other pulleys that actually happen in the background. 
And when you understand things like mental health from that perspective, you also then start to understand that, I believe, based on the research that I've conducted and have read, that around half of our poor mental health is uh, affected by lifestyle behavior changes, which means mm -hmm. the other half we can't impact at all. And so that means family upbringing, uh, genetics, um, socioeconomic reasons. So, you know, lots of mental health is driven by people being held back by society and the way society is structured. And so when you really start to think about all of that coming together in the workplace, I think you're looking at how am I removing the barriers to somebody being as successful as possible in their team or their role? Mm -hmm. And so you start to really understand that actually, if people don't get enough recognition, that starts to um, contribute to poor mental health. So um, and many of us listening to this podcast would have experienced that. You go a really long time where you feel like I'm putting this effort in and I just really don't think anyone cares about it. Right. That starts to affect your sleep, which starts to affect your physical well-being, which starts to make your overall well-being worse. And so there's this careful balance uh, that we need to achieve through all those things. And throughout the pandemic, you know, we talked about it before, burnout was a very, very common theme of the pandemic the way lots of employers have responded to that is probably in the incorrect way. Mm -hmm. So if you look at some really big employers like um, Nike and LinkedIn and Bumble, they surveyed people and kind of said their people said they were burnt out. So lots of them gave um, paid time off to those employees without really looking at the root causes of what caused that burnout in the first place. Right. And then if you look at some evidence that was um, shared by Burbeck university last year at, uh, the reasons why burnout happens were almost entirely down to organizational structure reasons. So I don't get enough recognition. I don't know what's expected of me. My workload is too much. Um, I've got unclear targets. Um, my manager doesn't seem to care about me or spend much time with me. They're all more likely to fuel burnout than anything else in the workplace. But the things that help to solve work workplace burnout or stress is down to things like social connections. So we know that the more social connections you have at work, the better you handle stress, the more people you've got to kind of offload to and feel like are on your side and fighting for you, the more you handle some of this stuff. And so I think when you start to then think about a kind of cultural well-being at work or in the team in which you operate, you start to see all these things come together where actually if I create a strong team that trust each other, that have high psychological safety, that care for each other, um, that enhances performance of the team. When I look at the individual's needs and make sure that they're included and not marginalized and excluded from our organization. So we celebrate people's differences and we make sure there's lots of diversity in our organization. All of that starts to have a big impact on well-being. And so it's almost like well-being is kind of a series of about 20 different levers that you kind of need to be pulling back and forth all the time to get this right. Um, and I think the way the pandemic affected this is um, it affected how we define well-being because we started to surface some of those things like inequality because we right. know the murder of Sarah Everard in the UK, the murder of George Floyd in the US, the pandemic surfaced a lot of inequalities. But it also surfaced the fact that when we physically tore people apart and made people work at home or remotely, they started to lose some of those emotional connections with each other. So our well-being was harmed by being physically removed from people during the pandemic. And so, again, we started to then appreciate, oh, actually, well-being is far more complex than just offering a mental health app or a gym membership. Right. All these things at play, which 
you know, you kind of go back to the tribe and fire of what it was like to be a human hundreds of years ago, those needs and wants haven't really changed. Yeah. Um, and so I think when we define well-being, we are looking at things like purpose, belonging, connections with other people, recognition. That's all really, really strong part of what well-being at work is, I think. Yeah. And I know hindsight is always like a gift, but I remember our, a lot of our content on hrgrapevine.com, especially lockdowns one and two were writing on these firms that were giving these employees a week off. And looking at the time, you know, I personally thought it was super innovative, but now looking back on it, it just seems like a quick band-aid sort of one size fits all approach where now we're seeing a more tailored based on the employee's individual needs. Cause you're thinking as an employee, well, great. Now I have a week off of work, but what am I going to do with the kids now? What, you know, now I have feel the pressure to try and book somewhere to go. And so a lot of times maybe coming back from that week off, you're not as refreshed and re-energized as the employers would have thought. So hindsight is always a gift, isn't it? But I think there's, I have a lot of sympathy there because if you look at the analogy of the house was on fire, you had to put the fire out. You couldn't be built putting smoke alarms in. Right. Stuff is in whilst the house is on fire. And so I think employers had to react to this very quick um, well-being kind of stressor that was thrown or thrust upon the organization. Sure. So I think the response to that was, let's go and buy some stuff because that's going to be the quickest way for us to do this is to give people some employee assistance program, mental health apps, all these kind of tools. And I think what's happening now as we as we hopefully are leaving the pandemic, you now have employers taking a breath and kind of saying, okay, right, so let's really start to look at what well-being works. And so I think we're at the start of probably many years of companies now really defining what well-being means to them and their organization and putting some things in place. Mm-hmm. Whereas the last couple of years, we've just been reacting to uh, an uh, incredible amount of pressure that HR teams were under. Right, right. Now is the time for us to be proactive. So with that in mind, what is the role that HR leaders have to play in fostering employee and company health? So I think the role of HR, which is obviously very broad, but I think the role of HR has evolved quite significantly over the last couple of years. I think any HR team, any HR function played a significant role in in the pandemic and how companies have got through the pandemic, whether that were HR teams kind of scrambling around to reinterpret it, what country leaders were saying on a Sunday night and then putting Mm -hmm. that into an email so employees understood what the rules were and what the kind of uh, um, the ups and downs of the pandemic were, um, right the way through to payroll, who had to start making some, again, very quick decisions and adjusting people's pay and and getting... um, um, getting pretty used to some complex new pay arrangements that they hadn't uh, ever had to deal with before. You know, it's it's through all of that, it's obvious that HR played a key role, whilst all, all at the same time balancing their own mental health whilst going mm-hmm. through this pandemic. So I have a, a, um, a huge round of applause for anyone working in HR to, to kind of have got this far, because I think it was incredibly challenging time, probably in the careers of, of most people working in HR. Um, and I think what it's also started to do is make the business realize that, you know, HR is so much more important to the organization than we thought it was. Mm-hmm. There were still many companies that were treating HR as just this kind of regulatory compliance, hire and fire, like the police of the organization. I think that was also lots of employees' attitudes as to what HR was there for. Right. Actually, no, there's this group of people here that are 
social workers and healthcare professionals and 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 tech experts and tech buyers we start to see the role of them really come to the surface and so i think when you start to think about the role of hr leaders in making sure we kind of have that employee um, company health um i think all we've seen really is an acceleration of something that was already happening and and when i wrote my book in 2016 my first book I talked about how I felt like HR would become almost like the maitre d' of the organization. They'd go up to each team and I'd tap you on the shoulder and be like, Eric, have you got everything you need? Like, do you need more training? What can I do for you? Can I take some hours away from you? Do you need more pay? Like, what do you need to be able to kind of perform your best? Yeah, I think that's what we're going to start to see HR continue to evolve into as technology has allowed us to reduce a lot of that admin. So that's becoming less and less. And also HR teams are more frequently now on the board of companies. So they have right. a seat at the table to talk about, actually, they've people have got a voice. So when a company's making a decision, you've got somebody saying, wait, how is this affecting our people? And have we thought about how this is going to affect our people? So when you think about organizational change, and we talked in the last episode about empathy, mm-hmm. you now have somebody saying, wait, how is this affecting our people? And are we doing right by our people when we make this decision? And I think the more that starts to happen, the more we start to create organizations that people want to go and work in because we feel like there is somebody on the board who's not just focused on profit and productivity. I feel like there's somebody there who's fighting for me and the rights of the individual employee. And I think that's a really exciting place for HR to be in because I think the decisions many HR people made through the pandemic and will continue to make over the next couple of years are having a significant impact on our societies. And you just think about how, you know, a guy gets murdered by a police officer in America and British HR teams are issuing statements to their people saying, not on my watch, you are black and you're included and I celebrate you and we will not have anything like that in my company. And then you have HR teams who are kind of looking at the customer base they work with and going back to their business and saying, you know, you're working with some companies here that our employees aren't happy that you're working with. And so that employee activism and voice is being celebrated and championed by HR. Um, and so I think they'll continue to have a very key role in well-being. I think well-being will continue to be um, owned and has to be owned by everyone in, in the organization. I think everyone has to understand the part they play in well-being. Each of us employees have a, a part to play in that and the well-being of our colleagues and our teams. Um, but I think HR will always will always have that kind of core position to, to, to own and run well-being. And I think I think that's where it should be. I think for a long time, HR has actually been focused on people. And most HR people I know, most HR directors I know, have a real need and want and desire to do right by people and are very people-orientated. And that's why they got into HR. So I think they, they, they will continue to have a critical role. And I think they proved during the pandemic how valuable they are. Yeah, and and I love how, and certainly we've we we I can back that up with some of our reporting. The fact that you have HR professionals getting those director level jobs, seats on the board, it's so important to have an advocate for the employee with that sort of visibility to really impact, and in a lot of cases improve the business strategy. So, and I think there's been an interesting change with that HR role as well over the years, where. Um, you know, there were HR people that I've met in the past that were came from operational roles and then mm. got given the HR director job with no qualifications, training or experience in people management or leadership or anything right. like that. And then you have, you know, the trouble that Revolut went through years ago 
and they started to have some really big cultural problems. And the CEO made a statement that basically said, I should have hired a HR person before I hired a finance person. Right. And I think that is now starting to get through and you are starting to get, you know, there used to be this old trope that you need, you don't really need a HR person until you get to a hundred people or more. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think that's true anymore. And you've got startups that are basically understanding the role of HR, not just in the success of the organization, but the health of that organization is now so important that actually should a HR person be one of my first hires and I'm excited to see so many new startups understanding that and, and very early on saying, right, we need HR first, because if we don't get a lot of this stuff right as we build it from the ground up, we will never get it right. And that's been great to see. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking to my own personal history, having involved, been involved in a couple of startups, uh, really, really wishing they had an HR team personally. I know the CEO would disagree, but definitely it certainly would help. So kind of wrap up these, our thoughts here on the healthy workplace. In your opinion, or from your dad and your experience, what are the markers of a healthy organization? This has evolved quite a lot over time. Um, I think with a lots of this stuff, we can just think back to our own experiences at work and start to understand when was I happy at work? And when did I feel like I was working for an organization that really got this stuff right? And it's some of the stuff I've already talked about, you know, when I felt like I was included, anyone who's marginalized will tell you that feeling included in the organization is an incredibly important part. And we can now track diversity and inclusion to a significant number of different markers of organizational success, like profit and productivity. So making sure people are included. So, you know, it's almost like, if you want to get well-being right, you've got to get another a, a couple of other things right as well. So communication needs to be kind of regular, clear, and transparent. Um, diverse inclusion needs to be kind of celebrated, and and uh, you know that needs a, a clear strategy attached to it. Um, and then you start to see some of the things um, that you need for well-being fall into place. You know, you create an environment where people have that voice. Yeah, you make sure that people are recognised for the effort that they put in. You start to make sure that where possible, you're making sure that work is a positive force in people's lives. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at things like living wage and abolishing zero-hour contracts and things like that, because the data is starting to tell us that those cause problems for people. So although that's not the be-all and end-all, there are, again, this list of things that the data is telling us. If you do that as an employer, your people are more likely to struggle. So we can start to understand that actually what things do I have in place to make sure that um, people are going to thrive and, and survive in the business. And so you then start to look at HR policy and making sure that, um, again, we talked about this before about empathizing with people, but people look at stuff like flexible working and the data tells us flexible working is incredibly good for people's um, mental health, yeah. giving people the economy and control over their hours and where and when they work from has a really big impact on their health. And so I think the healthy organization courts the opinions of their people regularly and acts on what they tell them. I think it celebrates and includes people and does everything it can to make sure it doesn't exclude people. It communicates regularly and honestly with its people as much as possible. It celebrates and builds community so that people feel like they're part of something and that they they build those all important emotional connections. And I think when you start to get those things in place, you start to create an organization and a culture that's really celebrating and, and built around well-being. Um, and I think that's, a, again, a really special place to be, I think, when you get some of those things right. And 
And lots of those things don't necessarily mean you need to be going out and buying lots of stuff and spending money. These right. are kind of cultural and structural changes that almost any organization can make. So in that, and the way you explain it there to me, now, now I'm personally envisioning well-being as sort of the sum of all of those products that you mentioned before, the, the, the diversity and inclusion, all of that. So that's great. Um, well, Gethin, Aiden, thank you so much for helping us break down a healthy workplace. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, once again, I'd just like to thank Gethin Naden, Chief Innovation Officer at Zellas, for taking the time to help me unpack and define what a healthy workplace is. It was a very insightful conversation, and I hope to those listening, you were able to come away with some key takeaways on how to define what a healthy organization is and how HR can play a role in fostering employee and company health. That's it for this week. We will be back soon with another installment of the Workplace of Now series presented along with our partners at Zealous. 